All right, well, today we'll be covering uh, the section of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 to 31. Matthew 24, verse 29 to 31. This is a passage deeply rooted uh, in the Old Testament scriptures that I trust will be uh, eye-opening, at least encouraging to you today. So uh, we're going to read, and actually today, just for, normally I've been reading the whole context. Um, Today I just want to bring us right to verse 29 uh, to 31 here. So I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Hear the word of the living God. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we approach this passage together. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you that it reveals you to us, your character, your holiness, your power. We thank you that it reveals your way for us, uh, to us. And so we pray that today we would behold both you and have a, uh, that you would guide us to a proper fear and honor of you and what you've spoken to us, as well as that your spirit would guide us in applying it to us today as your church, as your People, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, for many people, including myself, uh, this text is is the text which is possibly the most confusing and and easily misunderstood. And in some ways, I think I'm, I try to think back to what how I approached Matthew twenty four before. If I, I believe. If I remember correctly, that it was this verse that I that really determined how I read everything else, uh, going back to the start of Matthew 24, and probably the, the main reason why it took me so long to ever even be willing to consider or entertain uh, a preterist interpretation, the possibility that these things or most of these things had been uh, accomplished or fulfilled in, in 70 in AD 70. Uh, and so, again, we've, we've gone over this and we kind of have, have given all the qualifications. 
whether we're in agreement on that or not, there is still encouragement and, um, challenge, and, and uh, yeah, challenge from the Word of God to be given today. But I trust you'll be, again, uh, we're, we're going to be, uh, look, I'm, what I'm going to try to do today is spend, I decided I'm going to spend less time convincing you or, or, and looking at a lot of the smaller details. I, and, you know, I would appreciate it. If you want to know some of those, please ask me because I put in the work to try to figure them all out, but then I put it all together and I realize it'll take us way too long to do that together. So if you want to know those things, then please, I would love to have those kind of conversations. But what I want to do today is mostly just open up our Bibles, open up the Scriptures to see what is going on in these verses in light of the rest of, and in particular, especially the Old Testament uh, scriptures that Jesus clearly will see uh, had in mind when he said this. So I, I, again, I will just remind you that in our text, Jesus is continuing to answer his disciples' question revolving around the timing and, and the signs surrounding the coming judgment. Um, which he identified as the destruction of the temple. Uh, last week, warning of the, the, the messianic frenzies and the, the false prophets that would arise in these turbulent times and calling us to not look to those things where people say, look here, look there, but he says to look to what he has told us. He says, see, I've told you beforehand uh, that you might not be led astray. And so today's passage, we reach this climactic point at which the coming of the end of the temple is dramatically described. So here we're actually getting to everything to this point has been setting the stage, preparing them, be ready, and, and, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's coming. This passage, I believe, is describing this is the event that they're asking about. This is the, the time of the destruction of the temple that is being described. It's hard for our modern, scientific-orientated minds to comprehend at first. But again, this will be resolved by understanding that the disciples who Jesus was speaking to were not 21st century Western Christians, but they were 1st century Old Covenant Jews asking Jesus about the events surrounding their beloved temple. So So what we see first is the shaking of the heavens in verses 23 to 27, uh, 23 to 24. Uh, I wrote that down wrong. Verses 29, the shaking of the heavens. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so this cosmic deconstruction language is common throughout the Old Testament in reference to God's pouring out of divine wrath upon various kings and nations of the earth. So one clear example would be is in Ezekiel 32. In Ezekiel chapter 32, to get a taste of just this, this kind of language that would be used, Ezekiel chapter 32 Verse 1 to 12, in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him. And then he goes on 
And I actually wanted to read this to you as well in verse 4. He says, I will cast you on the ground, on the open field. I will fling you and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you. And, the, and will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. So that gets back to the, the vultures gathering around the corpse in, the, in verse 28 there. But verse 5, he continues, he says, I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood and the ravines will be full of, uh, full of you when I blot you out. I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. Now, what is going on here, right? What's going on in Ezekiel, what's being described? Well, when you look down at verse 11, he says, For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. He's describing what's happening when Babylon was coming upon, was marching in upon, in this case, in Ezekiel, uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so it's a, and it's a reference, it's the language they use in reference to the powers that be. Uh, and which, in one sense, I do believe there is a supernatural element to this. There is a cosmic element of, uh, that, and we're not going to get into that today, um, that there are divine, there are supernatural powers behind rulers and powers and authorities on earth. That, that God, that, that are being taken down here. That, are, that their lights are being knocked out, essentially. But what we also have is essentially symbolic language um, of, of, of what is exactly that. It's saying, you're, I'm going to knock your lights out. I'm, I'm going to turn off the power. You know, everything that you depend upon, every, the leaders, everything, it's going to be knocked down. And he says it's the sword of the king of Babylon that would do that. Now... So that's just one example. What I wanted to give you to, as well here to see is if you turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Verse 9. Isaiah 13, verse 9. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. From the stars, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. He says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. So what we have there is actually the direct quote earlier. um, Earlier there where he says the sun will will be dark and it, at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And then further down, as I just read, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. 
Now, there he's describing the judgment that took place, that, that happens to Babylon. So again, that's where, so how, how can I conclude what, on what authority or how, how do we come to that conclusion that this is symbolic language? Well, we know it's symbolic in, in Isaiah chapter 13 because the, the, the heavens, uh, the stars and the sun did not literally, you know, the, the earth did not end. The, the cosmos did not end when Babylon was judged, right? The world, as Babylon, or as Babylon knew it, did come to an end. Their, again, right? Their lights were knocked out. But um, again, it, it was not a, a universal thing. And so that, and that's the verse that Jesus quotes there. Now, if you go to the next chapter in Isaiah 14, the Jews, they've returned from Babylonian exile. And it's prophesied, followed by God's pronouncement upon Babylon. So, so um, the Jews are returning from Babylonian exile. And it now is prophesied, followed by God's pronouncement upon Babylon, who boasted in their own strength and glory. So God uses Babylon as, as his arm, as his instrument in bringing his judgment upon Israel. And as they do it, they're, they're, getting, they're boasting in themselves. And they're starting to think that they, you know, they're something. And so now God pronounces his judgment further here upon Babylon. When the Lord has, uh, in verse 3, he says, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, he says. And then if you go, that's just to give you context. If you go to verse 12, speaking of the king of Babylon, he says, Oh, you are fallen from heaven O day star, O morning star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Okay, so there's, these are examples, these are, again, Isaiah 13 is literally what Jesus quotes in our, in our text in Matthew 24, 29. But we see these, this language used of stars falling from heaven, referring to the powers being shaken that, that exist on earth. These passages sound as if the world were ending because, in a sense, the world was ending as they knew it. Right? It was the end of the world as they knew it. For those nations that, or the nations or nations that God was judging. So the heavens are shaken, and then in verse and then verse thirty to thirty one, we see the establishing of the the new heavens and earth. In verse thirty, again we we have Old Testament language and imagery being employed here. And in verse thirty, it says, "Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man." So. Does anyone remember what the title the Son of Man is associated with in the Old Testament? I went over it a couple months, maybe a month ago. Major, generally speaking, it refers to divine judgment. That's the surrounding theme of the Son of Man. I, I mentioned, you might remember that there was 13 times in which it emphasizes man's mortality. It's, kind of, it's contrasting Psalm 8 
um, who am I that you are mindful of me, the Son of Man that you care for him? And, and so there's a few examples where Son of Man is meant to contrast man to God, his, mort- his uh, mortality. That's 13 times. And then there's the one use in Daniel, which we're going to get to. And then the only other 93 times it's used, 93 times, is in Ezekiel. Which we just read in chapter 32, but it's all through Ezekiel where God's pronouncing judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. Ezekiel was the messenger of woe. And so as we observe this text, it's helpful to clarify in verse, in verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What is appearing here? What is appearing there? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Is it the Son of Man that, that is saying will appear? Or is it the sign of the Son of Man? And this, this I, I, obviously, literally, it says it's the sign that will appear. Now, this is emphasized or easier to see in the word order in the Greek text. And so if you have the King James Version, I don't know if anybody here has the King James. Surprisingly, also the NIV, which is usually a little more, I say surprising because it's more loose. (laughs) But the NIV also follows the Greek word order. And it says, and then shall appear the sign. Puts it right together as it is in the Greek. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. In other words, it's not the Son of Man himself in the flesh bodily appearing, it's the sign of the Son of Man that is appearing. Um, now the question is, what is the sign? Okay, so what is this sign of the Son of Man? What will be the sign that the Son of Man has come in judgment upon covenant breaking Israel? The temple's destruction, ultimately what it comes down to is the temple's destruction as he foretold it would. That, that is the sign that will point to the coming of the Son of Man's judgment. But more specifically, if we understand the sign as appearing in heaven or the sky here, I would further add that it is fitting with Old Testament imagery associated with judgment to understand the clouds of smoke rising from the flames of the ruined city and temple as such a sign. That the sign that they would see, that they would behold of His coming, that they, that they would know that He's come, is that the smoke would be rising from the city, from the temple, for all to see. Josephus reported that the flame was carried a long way and made an echo together with the groans of those that were slain. And because this hill was high and the works of the temple were very great, meaning the the size of the temple was so great, one would have thought the whole city had been on fire. One would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot as full of fire on every part of it, he describes. Josephus was was an eyewitness to it. In Genesis 19.28, again for this kind of judgment language associated with smoke rising. In Genesis 19.28, he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
So he's describing there the, the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, which Jesus told earlier in Matthew. He said to them that it will be um, that the judgment that those who rejected him would be far worse. Uh, Peter's reference to the imminent fulfillment of Joel's prophecy suggests similar imagery in Acts 2, verse 19. In Acts 2, verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. So again, we have similar themes here. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. In Isaiah 14, 31, Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in its ranks. So this is the sign of judgment, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus' prophecy likewise, he says, following the fiery sign of divine judgment, rising to heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So this was the response. When, we, when the sign is, is arising, the judgment has come, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, who are the tribes of the earth? Right, that's the question. The word for earth can be translated earth, land, soil. It's, it's, it's references to the ground. And so it really depends on context. Um, so which one? And, and, and so there's examples where I could point to where it, it refers to land. But which one do we go with? Generally speaking, both in the Old Testament and in Matthew, the use of the word tribes, right? The tribes of the of the earth, the tribes of the land, refers is used in reference to the twelve tribes of Israel, uh, especially when combined with the word earth. When you have the word tribes and the word for earth being used, it speaks of the 12 tribes of Israel. The clearest and closest example comes from Zechariah verse chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, Again, who are these tribes of, of, of the earth, of the land, who are mourning? Well, in Zechariah 12, verse 12, we literally have the same idea, the same concept being translated, the land shall mourn here. Now, if you look at the broader context in Zechariah 12, 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning of Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. Again, the, the, the reason I'm quoting this, there is a, a partial fulfillment here um, 
But this fulfillment, I believe, and, and it can happen, it, it, it's not just as, as though it happened once, but the primary fulfillment of this happened in Acts, where, it's, where Paul is preaching to them and they, and they hear him say, and he says, this Jesus is the one whom you crucified, and it says they were pierced to the heart. And they said, what must we do? Um, and so, so they mourn over Christ. So that's but what, the reason I'm sharing this with us for our verse is that I'm, I'm showing you that to understand all the tribes of the land uh, would have been understood as referring to the tribes of the land of Judah, uh, of Israel. The land shall mourn. Each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. It's different names and representatives, but it's referring to the different tribes of Israel. The land of Israel will mourn. As I said, recall Peter's sermon in Acts 2. He addresses, he addressed to the men of Judea and who all and dwell in Jerusalem. When they were gathered at Pentecost, he concludes his sermon saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So again, that's where I see that specific fulfillment being done. But again, we're still in the context of talking about the land of the tribes of of, of Israel mourning. And based on the context that we go back to our verse in Matthew 24, it is also safe to conclude that even for those who refuse to mourn in repentance over the rejection of the Messiah, there would still be wailing among all the people in lamentation over the horrifying bloodshed and destruction of their beloved city and temple in that day. And the reason why I'm convinced of that really, it's just considering the whole context, but there's this really interesting thing to note. In the words of Christ. In Luke 23, verse 28. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is being led, he's he's carrying the cross, he's being led to his death. And as they led him away, they seized one uh, Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And then this is why I just think it's, we just ought to take note of this, of how little Jesus said during this time, right? From the time he's being, he was arrested until the time he's crucified, how few words he spoke. And it's noted, he's noted for his silence during this time. So we, so I just want to, it, it, I think it's worth emphasizing the things that he does take care to say. And it says, turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 
Now, before I continue there, just remember that Jesus has stood on trial. Pontius Pilate found nothing in him deserving death. And so he says to them, right, he, took, he took, takes water, he washes his hands before the crowd. And he says, he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And so Jesus says, he looks at them, they're weeping for him. And Jesus says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? When they do these things, so when they, when they do these things, when the wood is green, in other words, when it's not time for judgment, it's not time for burning. What will happen when judgment does come? There will be mourning. And all the tribes. And verse 30 says, continues and says, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, we need to consider two passages related to this to bring clarity to what is being said here. Now, first, this is clearly an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. We'll see later. We know it's clear because it was clear as day to the to the high priest and those who put Christ on trial when he, he quote, quotes the same thing to them. But Daniel 7, verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, but shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, again, it might just to make sure and to help you, if you're like me and you're looking at that, you're saying, well, that hasn't happened yet, right? Like all that stuff. And yet, um, like that him was given dominion and glory and the, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. It has. Matthew 28. I mean, everything that Matthew's leading up to in Matthew 28. He's, Jesus says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. Now, if we go back to that verse, verse 13, it's helpful to clarify here that nothing speaks of the Son of Man coming to earth. I never noticed that before. It doesn't say that the Son of Man comes to earth in, this, in, in, in regards to what is being alluded to in this passage. Verse 13 says, so it says that the... With the, um, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Where It says, he came to the Ancient of Days. That is, he is being exalted here. 
He's going to, the Ancient of Days is the Father, God the Father. Uh, um, To receive vindication and authority and glory, as verse 14 says. Over and against the Jewish and civil establishment who sought to destroy him and cut him down. Instead, he's being exalted to the Father. Now let's consider one more passage in Matthew 26, verse 61. It's the same, it's, referring, it's using the same uh, quote. Matthew 26. The quote specifically is in verse uh, 64. But I, I want you to see, just in, I'll, I'll begin in verse 61. Matthew 26, verse 61. At least two wit, uh, witnesses came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, again, just know, even though here they're obviously they're twisting Jesus' words, what he said, referring to his body, that he would be raised. They're twisting his words here. But note that the accusation being made is in relationship to the temple being destroyed. And the high priest stood up and they said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you. So, and note who he's speaking to. He says, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, the, of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, just to assure us that they understood exactly what he was saying, notice their response. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do, we, do you need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. So based on the high priest's response alone, it doesn't take an Old Testament scholar to recognize Jesus has made a very loaded and clear statement in the mind of the Jew at that time. This was clearly understood to be a reference to his divine authority to carry out God's judgments on earth as it was determined in heaven. And Christ informs those sitting in judgment over him that they will see his coming. Which, as we have seen, is not a reference to his second bodily coming, which, he, which we're told about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But this is a reference to his, the coming of his judgment that he has declared upon Israel. That is that they would see it, the people he's talking to, they would see it, that is they would perceive it, in the sense that you see, or maybe that you don't see what I'm saying to you right now. How we use that word. Right? Not with your physical eyes, but with the eyes of understanding. As Jesus used in Matthew 13, 13, he says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, they do, for they do not understand. So the coming that the, that the Sanhedrin and the tribes of the land at large will witness was like Yahweh's coming against Egypt. If, I, if you were to look, for example, at Isaiah chapter 19. In Isaiah chapter 19, it says, An oracle concerning Egypt 
Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Which was the coming of the Assyrian army. Because Israel beheld their Messiah and stood over him in judgment, Jesus is saying that they would likewise would behold the Son of Man rising up in judgment against her. And so in verse 31, it wraps this all up. It says, And and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, keeping in context with everything we've seen so far, our passage concludes with the victorious restoration of the redeemed people of God, no longer tied to a single physical location, but being gathered across the world. So following the destruction of the temple, the Jewish believers who fled and escaped were scattered with most of them having little to nothing to come back to in Jerusalem. So the word for angel here, angelos in Greek, commonly refers to heavenly beings who serve the Lord and carry out various missions for God, which it very well could mean that. I believe the, gospel, the, the advance of the kingdom of God and the gospel going out, um, we, it's, it's somewhat of a mystery to us, but we know that angelic beings are serving the Lord's, uh, our, our mission as the church and advancing the gospel to the world. But, more generally, angelos can refer to any messenger serving as an envoy. Right? So that's, and that's why angels often get that name, because angels often are messengers of God. They're, they come to bring God's word. But a, a messenger could also refer to a man. Right? Uh, an angelos can refer to a man. In Matthew 11, verse 10, speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus said, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face. And that's the word angelos. Before I will send my angel before your face, who will prepare the way before you. He's referring to John the Baptist there. Well, what what is the message? This is the loud trumpet call, which is a reference to the trumpet call of the year of Jubilee. So Leviticus 25 verse 9 says, Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And so this of course was a foreshadow. The, the, The year of Jubilee was a foreshadow of the gospel of the arrival of the kingdom. Which Jesus said that he came to fulfill in Luke chapter 4, right? Luke 4 and 17, the scroll of, of Isaiah was given to him and he unrolls it. He found where it's written, it says, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to pro- proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he came to do. And on top of that, Scripture 
Throughout Scripture, the power of the Word of God is often expressed as a voice like a trumpet. That it is, it is piercing and it is, it is loud. It's, it's, you, can't, you can't avoid it. You can't ignore it. Isaiah 58 says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Revelation 1.10 I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So again, he will send out his angels, he will send out his messengers with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now the word there for gather is the same word that we've become familiar with from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, where he, argue, he urges the Jewish believers not to forsake assembling together, not to forsake gathering, where he is warning them not to leave the new covenant people and their practices and their, their gathering and return to apostate Judaism. That's what Hebrews is all about. Don't, don't go back to that. Don't forsake, what you, don't forsake the gathering. And return to that old way. And he says, especially as they see the day drawing near. The judgment drawing near. And so again, as in a way of con- conclusion and application... Um, first, be encouraged. God has been faithful to fulfill His word, to bring it about, and He is and to care, and is carrying it about. Uh, Hebrews chapter twelve. He says, verse twenty-two. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God the judge of all. And the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Where does that warning from heaven come from? Where, do, where does Jesus come from? He's sent from heaven. And he gives them this word of warning. Uh, and it's a warning that what, as it is fulfilled, it, it testifies that this warning was not of man. This warning was of God. This was a warning of hev- from heaven. And he says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And so he says, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made. The temples, the temple, the temple sacrifices, the right. All of the physical, these physical aspects that were meant to point to Christ. It's being, he's saying it's, it's being all removed, it's being shaken, in order that, that the things that cannot be shaken, Christ and his sacrifice, may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, he says. 
And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So, so again, be encouraged. We've, we, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Um, history testifies to that. Jesus, so history looking back testifies to it. Jesus before then prophesied looking to it and, and said it would be so. And then lastly, as we, see, as we apply this, and I'll just wrap this up quickly. You're his messengers. Right? We've, I mean, we've, we've been blessed. And, and there's been messengers for, all, um, uh, what, almost 2,000 years now, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, again, uh, he says that they will gather his elect from the four winds. Uh, we don't think of this I, I, I don't, I, or realize it. But, I mean, sitting here, there are people here who... I don't know, maybe some, maybe, I, I don't know actually if any of you are, uh, have a Jewish heritage or not. I don't know if we have any Jews here among us. But people with different skin colors, from different tribes, from different nations. And here we are on the other side of the world. And we are gathered here, worshiping Christ, our Lord and Savior. It testifies to God's faithfulness to, to carry out what he said he would do. And again, obviously, clearly he's not done. We're still here. And so we are those messengers being sent out with a loud trumpet call, the kingdom of God, uh, to, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, and salvation in Christ. And for there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So be encouraged in that and be obedient in that as his messengers. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you We thank you that you've spoken to us by your word today. We thank you for uh, how that you spoke to your disciples and that you gave them this instruction and how it guided them and, and led them through that great trial and tribulation and judgment that came upon Jerusalem and the city and the temple. But Lord, we thank you that, for, that in it, and out of these ashes, how we see that you were not, that Lord, that you were in the work of and in the process of fulfilling your promises and fulfilling your covenant and of redeeming your remnant, redeeming your people by grace, through mercy in Christ. And Lord, we thank you that we, we continue to hold on to that same hope today. That we would, and as we're told and we're, warned and we're, we're taught throughout Scripture, that we will one day stand before you and give an account for, for all our deeds. That the, the living and the dead will be judged. Lord, I thank you that you provided the mediator. We thank you that you provided Jesus Christ, the Savior. And that even today there might be some whom you are still in the, that, that you need to gather to yourself today. And so I pray that you would lead, lead those who have heard the trumpet call today. 
to forsake their sin and to forsake their false saviors and their idols and that they would turn to Christ. And that today would be the day that salvation comes to them, to their hearts, to their homes. God, I pray for your people here, for your church, that we would be faithful messengers, that we would sound the trumpet call of the coming of, the, of your kingdom, and that you would accompany it with the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.